giving me this message uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I told Laura, I said, I said, God's giving me a message, and I don't know what for, and I said, at the worst, I'm just going to start writing it down, and I'll preach it to you and Josiah, and uh, it wasn't a week later that Pastor Sam came to me and, and said that he was going to be out of town and that he needed me to speak for him. And so the Lord provided in advance. Pretty cool. And uh, tonight, I'm going to tell you, if you got something to write with, you probably should get it ready because I've got a lot of scripture. And uh, if you want to turn now, we're going we're gonna to be looking in the, in the book of Ezra, chapter 1. I got a lot of scripture. We're not going to go to all the scripture because we don't have time to go to all the scripture. And, um, but there's going to be some things that the Lord's going to speak to you. And before every scripture, I promise to say the reference. And so I encourage you to write it down because the Lord's going to speak to you in that way. And um, I just find it really cool how the whole word of God works together to form one awesome thread in the message that God tries to speak to us. And uh, I hope tonight that, that maybe a little bit of that is birthed in you, uh, as God's birthed in me more as we, as we continue, that the Word of God would speak to us more. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Father, we thank you for your Word. God, we thank you that, that tonight that it is a, a sharp, two-edged sword, Lord God, that is uh, carving us and making us, Lord, into the, into the people that you need us to be, Lord God. And Father, we pray that, that right now, Lord, that your spirit would come. And Lord Jesus, that Father, that you would just begin to move in our midst, Lord God. Move powerfully amongst us, Lord. And speak to us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I very much enjoy the context of the Bible. I enjoy how... It fits into history, how history proves the Bible, and the Bible proves history. Uh, and so I'd like to give you a little bit of context on this story of Ezra. Everybody knows who King David is, right? He's the guy, he had the sling, he killed Goliath, and, and, and he served Saul, and he, he eventually replaced Saul because Saul disqualified himself. And so David was king of Israel, and after him was his son Solomon. Solomon was king. And then after Solomon, there was civil disputes in, in the nation. And they actually split into two nations. Uh, the tribes of Benjamin and Judah formed the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, and their capital city was Jerusalem. And the other ten tribes formed a northern nation that remained being called Israel, and their capital city was Samaria. And all of the kings of Israel, after this division, practiced idolatry in, in one way or another. Idolatry being worshiping some, something other than God, as God, in some manner. And the worst of the kings of Israel uh, served the, the false god called Baal as their one true god. And uh, conversely, in Judah, after Solomon, after the split of the nations, most of the kings of Judah practiced idolatry in some form or fashion, and only a handful of them were considered good kings, kings who truly served 
the Lord. And so God was very displeased with his people. He wasn't pleased with them at all. And um, as we know, sin left unattended brings the judgment of the Lord. And so eventually, after giving them warnings, giving the northern kingdom warnings from the likes of uh, Amos, the prophet Amos, and the prophet Hosea, and several other prophets, he brought his judgment on the nation of Israel by the Assyrian Empire who came and defeated them in war. And one of their practices was is that those who they defeated, they exiled out of their land and took them out of their homes and planted them somewhere else as slaves. So the northern kingdom was gone. The judgment of God come on the northern kingdom. And uh, then Judah remained as a nation for 150 years. 150 more years. And there were some good kings. There was a king named Josiah. That's who my son's named after. And there was a good king. There was the best king named Hezekiah. And he served the Lord. And it, and it, and it staved the wrath of God, the wrath of God on Judah. But, but they just continued returning to their idolatry. And the, um, the Bible infers that the people always followed after the, the ebb and flow of the king. So the people kept returning to this idolatry. And eventually God's wrath was, was, was upon the nation of Judah as well. And he sent uh, his judgment by King Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire. And they came and they, they defeated Judah. They destroyed Jerusalem, burned it to the ground. And in the process of destroying Jerusalem... They destroyed the temple of God. The Old Testament means by which the people, the Jews had connection with God. The, the, the means by which they had access to His presence was destroyed. And so they were taken away to Babylon. And it's in Babylon that we see the stories about Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and Daniel and all that stuff. And they were part of that Babylonian exile. And so they're over there, and Daniel, as he's prophesying in Babylon, one of the prophecies that he makes is, is that the Babylonian Empire would fall, and they would be supplanted by the Persian Empire. And um, there's a lot of prophecy. I was going to talk about it, but I really don't have time to talk about it. But you know, the prophet Isaiah, he prophesies that this Persian king Cyrus would, would rise to power, and that he would be an integral part of... Um, of, of the Jews returning to their land and rebuilding the temple after 70 years of captivity. And so anyhow, and that was 150 years before the man was ever born. Pretty cool. And uh, so this King Cyrus, he rises to power and the Jews pass from Babylonian captivity to underneath the power of the Persians, this King Cyrus. And that's where we are at the beginning of Ezra. And um, Cyrus... He reads the prophecy about him that was made 150 years before, and he says, Huh, God has called me to rebuild his temple. And so he makes a decree, and he says, He says, Any Jew that desires to go back to Israel, to Jerusalem, and rebuild the temple, you're, you're free to go. And on top of that, I'm going to give you the taxpayer's money to build the temple. And on top of that, I'm going to take all the old, um, whenever Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed Jerusalem, he had taken all the gold temple um, instruments, I guess, if you will, and, uh, and he had taken them into his treasury, and, he, and this King Cyrus, he had found these, and he gave them back to the Jews to, to, to use in the temple worship whenever they rebuilt the temple. He makes this awesome decree. 
And uh, in Ezra chapter 1, verse 5, it says, Then God stirred the hearts of the priests and Levites and the leaders of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of the Lord. You see, the first thing that I want you to understand tonight about the work of God is that the work of God starts with the stirring of the hearts of His people. You know, the Apostle Paul told Timothy, stir up the gift of God that is inside of you. In uh, Revelation chapters 2-3, through when John's prophesying, one of the first things he prophesies about is the seven ages of the church that will span from Christ's death and resurrection to His return as King of kings and Lord of lords. He lists out seven, seven different eras of the church. And the seventh one, the era that we live in now, was the church of Laodicea. And John, in his letter to the churches, rebukes the church of, the church of Laodicea because of their apathy. And I want to tell you guys, today, if you look around at the church, the church has become very apathetic. The church has become very set in being okay with everything being the norm. The believer is okay with blending in with everyone around him. The majority of churches today are focused on self-pleasing. How can I make myself feel better at church? And if it doesn't make me feel better, where can I go that will make me feel better? You know, and even the good churches, the majority of the people are spectators while a minority bears the burden of serving God and, and implementing His plan and His works through the church in the world. And it's a big problem that we have these days. It's that, it's that church of Laodicea, that seventh era of the church before Christ's return that, that John prophesied about. And today, I want you to understand that we need to, we need to believe and we need to pray that God will begin to stir the hearts of the church to put their hands towards His work, to engage back into the work of God. We need to pray, and this is my prayer, almost daily, is God, stir the hearts of our congregation to Your works. Stir the hearts of the people at our church so that we can begin to walk in the fullness of the work of the kingdom of God in our church. And so that needs to be our prayer. We need God to stir our hearts, to stir the hearts of the church to begin to, to do the work of God. So, in, um, in chapter 2, we see that about 50,000 of the Jews return to the homeland, to Jerusalem. And some of them settle in, uh, in villages near Jerusalem. And some of them returned to the cities from, from where they came. But the whole intent was that on, on given times, they would all come together and, and, and begin building the temple. And in chapter 3, we see God begin to raise up two key characters. Two leaders of, of, these, of these returning Jews. The first one was a priest. His name was Jeshua. And Jeshua was the spiritual leader of the people. He was the priest that rose above the other priests and, and led the people from a spiritual sense. And then there was a man uh, named Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was from the tribe of Judah. He was in the royal lineage, which was no longer royal anymore because they had been in exile for 70 years. 
And from him, from his line also came Jesus. So he was in that royal lineage of Judah. And he rose to power, at, not really to power, but he rose up as a leader from a political sense, a governor of sorts. And so we have these two men that God raises up, and they're kind of the key, the key players in this story. And they guide this, this, this uh, rebuilding of the temple. And the first task was to rebuild the altar because they wanted to reinstitute the daily sacrifice to God because they were afraid of the people around them. You know, they were kind of in an unsettled territory. They didn't have walls. There was only 50,000 of them. Uh, there weren't really soldiers. They were just kind of there with a bunch of gold <laughs> sitting in the tent, and they were kind of scared. And so they said, we need, to, we need to rebuild the altar. So they did that. And in the second year, uh, after two years of, of gathering lumber and stones and mortar and, and everything that they would need, after two years of that, they finally had all the materials stored up to begin to build the temple. And uh, in Ezra chapter 3, verse 8, I want to show you something. It says, The construction of the temple of God began in mid-spring during the second year after they arrived in Jerusalem. The workforce was made up of everyone who had returned from exile, including Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, and the fellow and his fellow priests, and all the Levites. See, the second thing that I want you to understand about the work of God tonight is that in God's work, we lead by serving. Uh, Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the priests actively involved themselves in the work of God. They were hands-on. They were involved. You see, in Jesus' time, there were men who were the opposite of that. They called themselves the Pharisees. And these men were highly educated men who sought to separate themselves from the common man by their meticulous uh, application of Moses' law. And the Pharisees, their intent was to create a religion in which they stood above man in between man and God. That was their intent. And Jesus hated that. He didn't hate them, but he hated that. And we find all through the Gospels that Jesus is at odds with these Pharisees because, because they're not doing, the, doing it the way that God intends it to be done. They sought to lead by lording themselves over people and, and telling people what to do and, and, and separating themselves from people when we see that God and His works requires us to lead by serving and Jesus, um, in, in, in Matthew chapter 20, uh, James and John, they asked Jesus, they said, you know, they, they were kind of of this same spirit. They said, Jesus, you know, we've done so many things for you. We want, we want you to allow us to sit at your right hand in heaven. We want, we want thrones next to you, you know. And, and Jesus, in, in chapter 20 of Matthew, verse 25, he said, it says, but Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
So you see tonight that the work of God cries out for leadership, but it cries out for leadership that is implemented by serving. And so continuing in the story here, uh, when the foundation was complete, many celebrated with, with shouting and celebration. Now they had a big party. But there were some older fellows, fellows who were over 70 years old, who had seen Solomon's temple. And the, and the Bible says that, that they were grieved in their heart because the temple that they were building had no comparison to the temple that they were building now. Kind of nickel and dominant. But anyhow, this, this loud noise of, of, of celebration and of sadness kind of rose up. And, and the people from the north, their northern neighbors, they heard it. And they, they, they kind of came and they, they were like, well, what's going on? What's, what's happening down here? You know, and, and these people to the north, um, give you a little background about where they came from and where we know them elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, you see, one of the practices of the, of the Assyrian Empire was that not only when they defeated a nation did they, did they take them out of their country, but they would also take other foreigners who they had defeated and they, and they would plant them there in, in place of them. So, and, the, and the whole thought was to kill patriotism, to, to, to kill the will of the people, to not allow them to return. And so these people, these foreigners, had been placed in place of the northern Jews, the northern kingdom Jews. And the capital city, the main city, was still Samaria. They were living in the cities where the Jews had lived. And Samaria was the capital city, so they became known as the Samaritans. And the Samaritans, they were polytheistic people. But whenever they came into the land, they adopted worship of God, of Jehovah God, Elohim God. They, they adopted worship of Him with their other gods. And so they had a polytheistic, twisted, weird religion that included Jehovah God, but it wasn't true worship. And so they came down and they, they say, oh, look, the Jews are building a temple to one of our gods. Can we help Jews? Can we help Zerubbabel? Can we help Jeshua? And so they got together and they talked about it and they said, they said, no, you can't. You can't help. We can't do it. You know, you, you don't worship God in the right way. We can't allow you to be involved in this. God has said that we are to come and we are to build the temple. And so the Samaritans got a little angry. And this was the beginning of all the bad blood. You know, you know Jesus at the well and, and the Samaritan lady. Why are you talking to me? Jews don't talk to Samaritans. This is where it started. And there was bad blood between them. And they began to intimidate and threaten the Jews. And they even filed legal suit against them. They would, they would, they would file legal petitions with the Persians trying to slow down the work of God. And the third thing that we need to understand tonight about the work of God in our, in our life is, is that the work of God will always meet opposition from the world. Always. Jesus taught in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. If you choose, I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. And again, in John chapter 3, 18, he says, there is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, speaking of himself. Uh, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. 
And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light. For their actions were evil. And the Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians 4.3, he says, If the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it is hidden only from people who are perishing. Satan, who is the god of this world, has blinded the mind of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. And you see, the world loves its sin. And the world hates anything that threatens its sin. And that's just a fact. That's the fact of the world that we live in. The Bible says that the world is blinded to the works of God, deceived by the enemy. Uh, and the works of God's kingdom will always meet opposition in this world because the works of God always go against the grain of the world. It always goes against the flow of the world. And so as believers, we should expect opposition. And so during this time, whenever the Samaritans, they were at odds with the Jews, a new king came into power. His name was Artaxerxes. And um, the Samaritans saw this as an opportunity to, to capitalize on, on the new regime. You know? And so what they did, they wrote a formal letter and they said, hey king, um, these Jews are building their temple and if you let them keep building their temple, then they'll build their city and then they'll build their walls and then they'll rebel against you. And so you got to stop them. And, and so the king believes it and he makes, a, he makes a formal decree, writes it into law. The work must stop. you got to stop building. And um, so the Jews are in a tough spot. Because legally they're told, stop. Can't do it. And so it's at this time, with all this legal stuff going on in this new king, that um, we're told that two prophets rose up at this time and began to prophesy to uh, Zerubbabel and Jeshua, and the Jews. And their names were Haggai and Zechariah. And Haggai and Zechariah, uh, they, they, they kind of had the same message. For, for time's sake tonight, I just want to look at Haggai. It's a two-book, uh, two-chapter book. And their, their messages are much the same. Zechariah has a lot more uh, end-time prophecy in his, prophet, in his prophetic uh, book. But uh, their, their message to the Jews are much the same. And uh, so if you would, flip to the right. I'm going to go over to Haggai. Chapter 1. And uh, in Haggai, we basically find that the Jews have basically given up on the temple. They decide that uh, we must not have heard from God. It must have just been us. Uh, we don't know what we're talking about. Uh, we made this up. And so they decided that this was not the time to build the temple. wasn't the time. And so now they're sitting here in, in this kind of desolate land, and, and they don't have a whole lot to do. And so instead of doing God's work, they begin to focus on building their own houses and their own estates and stuff. And they start kind of, you know, making a home for themselves. But there's a problem in that they neglected the work of God. And so in Haggai chapter 1, let's see, where am I? Here we go. Verse 3 says, Then the Lord sent His message through the prophet Haggai. 
Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruins? This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. And this is interesting. Listen to what he says. Look at what's happening to you. You have planted much, but harvest little. You eat, but are not satisfied. You drink, but are still thirsty. You put on clothes, but cannot keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them in your pockets filled with holes. That's interesting. You know, um, and that brings me to the, to the fourth thing about the work of God is that ignoring the work of God results in the curse of never being satisfied. How many know people like that? They get and 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 they're never satisfied. You know, I see so many people in different income stratus and they make it, the story is the same of every single person that doesn't serve the Lord. They, 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 it don't matter if they make a little or a lot. They stretch themselves out so thin with debt and, 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 and stuff that doesn't matter. And, and they're under the curse because they're not tithing and their money's cursed. And, it, and, it, and it's like they're putting, it's like they're putting it in their pockets and there's holes in their pockets. You know, it's because, it's because it's a principle of God's Word that whenever we don't seek Him and put our hands towards His work, that we're never satisfied. It's a curse. You know, um, the love of money is a great example of that because the Bible talks about it over and over and over and over again. In Ecclesiastes 5.10 it says, Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. So what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? And then in Malachi 3a, Scripture we're all very familiar with, he says, Should people cheat God? Yet you have cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? You have cheated me of the tithes and offerings due to me. You are under a curse, for your whole nation has been cheating me. See, when our focus gets off of God's kingdom, and off of God's works, and on our kingdom, and on our works, the curse comes on our life. And it will never be enough. You know, like the widow who fed Elijah, you know, she had just a little bit of food. And she was going to make her last meal and her and her son were going to eat it and then they were going to starve to death together. And Elijah came and he said, he said, make me a cake first. And she believed. And she gave to the Lord first. And then God blessed what she had. And then God made provision. And then the curse was lifted off of her in the middle of the famine she was provided for. The curse was lifted off of her because she set herself first to the work of God. Um, something to remember. I think there's all that we've all experienced times in life where we get a little sidetracked and we allow our purposes and our desire and our will to get ahead of God's purposes and God's desire and, our, and, and God's will. And in, in one level or another, I think we've all experienced the curse that results because of that, 
But something to remember is, is that God is always very ready and willing to forgive us and to take us back in and to, and to bring us back under His, His, His blessed covering. Let me show you something. You need to write this one down. This is Joel t- chapter 2, verse 12. It says, This is why the Lord says, Turn to me now. This is why the Lord says, Speaking of, of um, the Jews were under a, a plague of locusts because, because of some stuff that they had been doing with idols. It says, That is why the Lord says, Turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for He is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not to punish. You see, God, whenever we get ourselves in these sticky situations, and even when we don't get ourselves in these situations, whenever we find ourselves in these sticky situations, maybe for no fault of our own. God is more interested, well, let, me, let me word it this way, God is less interested in changing your circumstances and He's more interested in changing your heart. You know, uh, so often people come to God and our, and our only prayer is, God, change my situation. Change my situation. Make my situation better. Give me this. Give me that. Give me, give me what I need. I need this. I need that. And that's not a bad prayer. But before all of those things, the, the, the overarching theme of our prayer life needs to be, God, here is my heart. Change me, Lord. Do in me what You want to do, God. Father, uh, if there's any way for you to take me out of this situation, do it, Lord, but not my will. But yours be done, God. Lord, here's my heart. And oftentimes I find that, that whenever I lend my heart to the Lord and God changes my heart, then my circumstance begins to change. And so, uh, the Jews found themselves cursed because they forsook the work of God for their own desires. And Haggai, he begins to instruct them. He says, listen guys, you're wrong that now is not the time. Now is the time. It's time. It's time to start. It's time to start the rebuilding. It's time to go. And um, in verse 12 here, chapter 1, it says, Then Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of God's people began to obey the message from the Lord their God. When they heard the words of the prophet Haggai, whom the Lord their God had sent, the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave the people this message from the Lord. I am with you, says the Lord. Now listen, this is important. So the Lord sparked the enthusiasm of Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the enthusiasm of Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the enthusiasm of the whole remnant of God's people. They began to work on the house of their, of their God, the Lord of Heaven's armies, on September 21st of the second year of King Darius' reign. That brings me to the fifth thing that we need to understand about God's work. 
There are times when our spirit needs to be sparked and stirred by the Lord. Because we all experience times in our lives when our enthusiasm for God and for His works in our life begin to uh, wane. When we lose that focus and our enthusiasm and, our, and, our, and we get sidetracked and we get off of, of His purpose and His works for our lives. And it's important that we understand how by the power of His Holy Spirit we can spark the enthusiasm inside of us and stir the purpose of God afresh in our lives. You know, Peter did a great act of faith when he stepped out on the water in the storm and walked to the Lord. But his focus got off of the Lord. He began to be distracted by the waves and the wind and the storm. He took his eyes off of the Lord and he began to sink. But he, instead of just sinking and dying, he realized his situation and he cried out to the Lord. He cried out for Jesus. And the Bible says that Jesus touched him and rose him up and they walked to the boat together and the work was complete. You know, again, Peter, uh, at Christ's trial, whenever he was being tried for crucifixion, Peter denied Christ. I'm losing my mic. <laughs> Has this been falling off my head? <laughs> That's funny. Okay. But that was distracting. <laughs> uh, somebody go like this if it does it again. Uh, Peter, at Christ's trial, he, uh, he denied the Lord. He cursed Jesus. He said, I don't know the man. And then after that, he even, he even kind of forsook his calling. The Bible says he went back to fishing. But Peter, when he had an encounter with the risen Lord, he sat and he listened to Him. And he took instruction to Him. And Jesus said, Jesus told him, He said, go to Jerusalem and wait. Go to Jerusalem and wait. I'm going to do something for you. And so he went to Jerusalem with the other disciples. And they waited on the Lord and the Holy Spirit fell upon them and sparked, sparked the enthusiasm inside of them. They were filled with the Holy Ghost. And Peter stood up that day and, and he preached the Gospel like the Gospel had never been preached before. And the Bible says that 3,000 people believed and were added to the church. But it's because he didn't give up. He went back to the Lord. And you know, something interesting that I like to think about, you know, on, on the same day, on the day of Jesus' trial, both Judas and Peter betrayed the Lord. Both of them betrayed the Lord. But the reason that we remember Judas as a traitor and we remember Peter as a mighty man of God is because Peter got back up. He didn't let his failure keep him down, but he returned to the Lord. He returned to the Lord. He sought, he sought the Lord. He let the Lord re-spark that flame inside of him. And in order to accomplish the work of God in our lives, whenever we fail, we have to get back up. There's people in your lives today that need to hear this. They need, to, they, need to, they need your encouragement to get back up. They need your encouragement to spark inside of them the work of God, the call of God that was so real to them before. Because it hasn't gone away. The time is still now. 
They need to be sparked with enthusiasm. You know, in 1 Samuel chapter 30, it talks about David. David and his men, this was before he was king, uh, when Saul was pursuing him in the wilderness. And uh, he had his army of men, and they were out fighting, and they came back to their base, and all the women and children had been kidnapped away. And, uh, and the men, there was such sadness. There was weeping and crying, and, and they were crippled from action because of their sadness. And there was even talk about assassinating David. The men were beginning to talk about killing him because of what had happened, because they didn't know what else to do. But the Bible says that David strengthened himself in the Lord. He went to, the, to, a, to a quiet place and he strengthened himself in the Lord. And, and, and he, he said, Lord, what should I do? And the Lord, the Lord gave him purpose. The Lord sparked in him a purpose. And he said, pursue. And David pursued and he recovered all. And that was his road to, be, to becoming the king. But if he'd have sat there in, in, in fear and in sadness, they probably would have killed him. It's that it's getting back up, strengthening. The church today needs to be strengthened in the Lord. We need God to spark our enthusiasm for the acts of for His works in the church. It's an important thing. It's a prayer that we need to pray. Uh, moving down to chapter two here, verse four. But now the Lord says, Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people still left in the land. And now get to work, for I am with you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. My spirit remains among you. Just as I promised when you came out of Egypt, so do not be afraid. See, the sixth thing that we need to understand is, is that God will strengthen our efforts when we seek first His kingdom works. Matthew 6.33 But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. All the other things that would distract us will be added to us. Because you see, there's so many things in life that can distract us. In America, we have so many options, which are blessings, but they can also be curses because they can easily distract us from the work of God in our lives. And it's not so much a time issue as it is a heart issue. You know, just like money, you know, with, with money, God requires that we give Him the first 10%, and the Bible says that He blesses the 90, that He redeems the 90%, and He gives it back to us. You know, and, and just like money, with our time, with our thoughts, with our talents, with our strength, with our gifts, with our works, God doesn't want the majority necessarily because He understands that we have kids to raise, that we have uh, school to attend, that we have jobs and livings to make. And, and, and there's things in life that we have to do that God understands God doesn't expect us to spend 23 hours of the day locked in a room reading our Bibles and praying. But what He does want is the first and the best. And without getting legalistic, I want you to really think about that. What does the first and the best mean for you? What does that mean? 
You know, what does that mean? How can you give God the first and the best? You know, and that's up to you and the Holy Spirit. Uh, And as we begin to set our hearts on God's kingdom, we move from this curse of getting it, never being satisfied, to the blessing and the provision and the covering of God. Psalm 23.1 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I have all that I need. And then the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 says, Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. And then down in verse 19, he says, And this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. It's the provision of God. It's the opposite of when we build our kingdom instead of God's kingdom where we get the curse. When we begin to set our hands to the work of God, it's blessing, it's provision, satisfaction. Despite our situation, whether we have a lot or we have a little, we find satisfaction when we set our hands to the work of the Lord. So Haggai then prophesies about the end times. He begins to speak of times that we haven't seen yet. He begins to speak of times when the heavens and the earth will be shaken. And all the earthly things will pass away. And the reason that he does that is he wants to give the people eternal perspective. He wants to give them a broader view of, of, of the world that we live in. And I want to read to you what he says. Uh, this is in chapter 2, verse 6. It says, For this is what the Lord of heaven's army says, In just a little while I will again shake the heavens and the earth the oceans and the dry land. I will shake all the nations and the treasures of all the nations will be brought to this temple. I will fill this place with glory, says the Lord of heaven's armies. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of heaven's armies. The future glory of this temple will be greater than its past glory, says the Lord of heaven's armies. And in this place, I will bring peace. I, the Lord of heaven's armies, have spoken. I want to show you, the Bible talks about this event at the end. This is, this is God's final pouring out of wrath on the earth before he returns uh, on the white horse, you know, and he, and he slays the wicked with the word of his mouth, and, you know, we're riding behind him on our white horses. And uh, this is that last judgment as God redeems the world. And he speaks about it in a couple other spots. In Hebrews 12, 26, it says, When God spoke from Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. But now he makes another promise. Once again, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens also. In Revelation chapter 16, we're given even more detail. It says, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a mighty shout came from the throne in the temple, saying, It is finished. Then the thunder crashed and rolled, and lightning flashed, and a great earthquake struck. The worst since people, have placed, since people were placed on the earth. The great city of Babylon split into three sections and the cities of many nations fell into heaps of rubble. So God remembered all of Babylon's sins, Babylon being the capital of the Antichrist. Uh, and he, he made her drink 
the cup that was filled with the wine of his fierce wrath. And listen to this. And every island disappeared and all the mountains were leveled. There was a terrible hailstorm and hailstorms weighing as much as 75 pounds fell from the sky onto the people below. They cursed God because of the terrible plague of the hailstorm. And then one more time, you know, after that, God, Jesus comes and he reigns for a thousand years on the earth and then Satan's released for a time and he tempts man again and then Satan's bound and thrown into, into, the, into the second death, um, the lake of fire. And, and then as Christ comes again to bring the new heaven, the new Jerusalem, it says this in, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. Now that statement is a small statement, but he says, For the, the old heaven and the old earth had passed away. You know, one day everything that we know is going to be gone. It's going to pass away. Colossians 1.17 tells us that God holds all of creation together in His hand. He holds it together in His hand. And there's something interesting that, that kind of baffles science. You know, one of, one, of the, one of the very fundamental things, the atom, on an atomic level, the atom, for all intents and purposes, defies the law of magnetics. Because the law of magnetics is that opposites attract and lights like light poles deflect each other. Right? That's the that's the basic principle of the magnet. And yet at the atomic level we see these positively charged protons bound together with neutrally charged neutrons, but, but nonetheless, these positive charges are bound together, not repelling one another. And many Bible scholars believe that this is how God holds creation in His hand. He holds, he holds at the atomic level everything together in His hand. And the Bible says one day the old heaven and the old earth will pass away and I believe that God's just going to let it go. And in a moment, everything that we know is chairs, our houses, the money in your wallet, the money in the bank, the banks, the biggest palace, the smallest shack, it's all going to pass away. And he tells us these things, he tells us these things to give us eternal perspective so that we can remember and realize that only the things that we do for God's kingdom are going to last beyond this lifetime. Everything else is gone. It's going to pass. In eternity... In the new Jerusalem where we're going to live with God forever and ever. The gold that we hold so tightly to, that we work so hard for, that we give our lives to for, it's going to be used as pavement. I believe God does that to give us eternal perspective. These things that we work, that we hold so highly on earth, it's going to be asphalt in heaven, you know? <clears throat> Throughout the Bible, God speaks the eternal perspective that only the works of His kingdom will last in eternity. In uh, 2 Corinthians 4.17, it says, For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on, on things that cannot be seen. 
For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. Will you pray with me? God, set our hearts on things which are eternal. The church needs it. We need it. And so Haggai goes on. He describes the sin, how the sin of neglecting the work of God has um, contaminated everything else that they do in their lives. But then he says, mark down this day. Because from this day forward, the day that you chose to obey the Lord, the day that you chose to set your hand back to the work of God, you will be blessed. And so the eighth thing that we need to understand is that that obedience to God removes the curse and imparts His blessing, provision, and protection on our lives. Deuteronomy chapter 28 is the blessing chapter. I love Deuteronomy chapter 28. And uh, starting in verse 1 here, he says, If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully keep all His commandments, if, very important, that I am giving you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the world. You will experience all these blessings if you obey the Lord your God. Skipping down to verse 6, he says, Wherever you go and whatever you do, you will be blessed. In verse 8, the Lord will guarantee a blessing on everything you do and will fill your storehouses with grain. The Lord your God will bless you in the land He is giving you. You see, God so wants to bless His people. God so wants to bless me and you. But oftentimes we find ourselves acting like a rebellious child living in the home of a parent. And just like it would be detrimental for a parent to bless and condone a child who's rebellious, God will not, He cannot, because of His justice, bless a rebellious child. Throughout the Bible, we see that God is waiting to pour out His blessings on an obedient person who will set His hands and set His heart to the works of God. In 2 Chronicles 16.9, it says, The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth to strengthen those who are loyal to Him. In Jesus, in the parable of the talents, He told of a He said, the kingdom of God is like a man, a master, who's leaving, and he leaves his servants with some money, and he gives one five bags of money. And the one who had five bags of money went and he invested it, and he did stuff with it, and he increased his master's money to ten bags of money. He doubled it. But one of them he gave one, and the one who had one did nothing with it. He sat on it. He buried it. He gave it back to the master. He said, I give you back what you gave me, just how it was. And the master said, you wicked servant, take from him who has one and give it to the one who has ten. And in Matthew 25, 29, he says, to those who use well, this is the end of that parable. He says, to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, 
Even what little they have will be taken away. You see, God's hand of blessing is upon those who do His work. He wants to bless us. But it's when we put our hands to the work of God that the blessing of God comes. So, going back to Ezra, that is the prophecy of Haggai in a nutshell. You should read it. It's awesome. Uh, Following the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah, Zerubbabel and Joshua, Jeshua, sorry, I'm Joshua, this is Jeshua. Uh, Zerubbabel and Jeshua restarted the restoration of the temple. They began to rebuild and started the work again. And uh, the Persian governors, they kind of come up and say, hey, what are you doing? You know, uh, I've got this permit here that says that you can't do this and you're building and and so anyway, they, they kind of say, listen, God told us we have to start. We just got to start. And so God somehow, it doesn't really go into detail, but somehow God made a way where they allowed them to continue to build until a former, formal letter could be written to the new king, another king had come into power named Darius. And so what I want you to see here is, is that God, despite their governmental situation, made a way. And I want you to understand something today is that, you know, our country... Um, our country is, is, is going in the wrong direction. You know, and there's, there's things that go on in our government right now that baffle me. I had my insurance guy at work today, and the things that he was saying baffled me. <laughs> and and it, it's unbelievable to me what they're doing in the government. It's unbelievable how they're defying the Lord, how they're defying the Constitution. And, uh, but just like these guys, I want you to understand that God is going to make a way in America for His works to go forward. You know, and it doesn't matter who the president is. It doesn't matter if the Senate and the Congress are Republican or Democrat. Because we serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And the work of God will go forward in America as long as the church continues to put their hands towards the work of God. And so a letter is drafted to the king, King Darius, describing the history of the temple and the decree of Cyrus. And the Jews request that um, he look in the archives and... Oh, geez, it's almost 8.30. They look in the archives and, um, and find the decree of Cyrus. And so Darius goes and he looks and he... He, he finds the decree, and, and he writes his own decree, and this is what he writes. This is in Ezra chapter 6. He basically says, The governors must not disturb the Jews in, re, in their rebuilding effort, that the governors must provide tax money to pay the construction costs, and that the governors must provide all the needs of the priests for the sacrifices of the temple. And this is the best part. He says, Oh yeah. And anyone who disobeys this decree, I'm going to tear down your house, I'm going to build a gallows, and I'm going to hang you. <laughs> and so, how many of you know that, that that shut the enemies of the Jews up a little bit? You know, And that, that's, that's the last thing that we need to understand about the work of God tonight is, is that if we will commit ourselves to God's Word, God will deal with our enemies. You know? 
in, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talks about, there's a, there's a passage that I think is misunderstood a lot. He talks about if somebody slaps you, give them the other cheek. If they sue you for your coat, give them your undergarment too. And, you know, if somebody gives you their gear to carry, uh, you carry it an extra mile. And that's not, Jesus isn't teaching that we should allow people to take advantage of us or that we should be pushovers. What Jesus is teaching us is, is that those who position themselves as enemies to us, we really shouldn't worry about them, you know? He's saying, don't worry about people who position themselves as enemies. So many people, so many Christians are bound up with unforgiveness and anger. You know, these, they, we're, we're bound up with, 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 with bitterness towards enemies who have wronged us. But what, what you need to understand is, is that unforgiveness and anger cripples the work of God in your life. It poisons your spirit. It stops, it stops your communion with the Lord. It saturates you with, 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 the, with the lust of the flesh and, and, it, and it purges you of the fruits of the Spirit. You know, Peter asked, Peter asked Jesus, he said, Jesus, how many times should I forgive my enemies? Seven times? And Jesus said, no, you forgive them 70 times 7. That number 7 is, is a number of completeness. Jesus wasn't saying 490 times or whatever that is. Jesus was saying, you keep forgiving. And you keep forgiving. And you keep forgiving. And you don't worry about these people who position themselves in your lives as enemies to you. Because, because all they're going to do is derail you. And, 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 you know, the Bible says that we fight not against flesh and blood anyway. You know, it's the work of the enemy in our lives to, to, to wedge unforgiveness and anger into our hearts and keep us from the purposes of God in our lives. And we've just got to let those things go and forgive and, 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 and not harbor anger and, and bitterness and frustration towards people who do us wrong. We gotta, the, the Bible says that our job is to forgive and to, to, to set our heart on Him. You know, the Bible says, if, uh, Jesus said to His disciples, if anyone desires to follow after Me, you must deny yourself, take up the crosses of life, take on the burdens, take on the enemies of life, bear the burdens that this life puts on you, keep your eyes on Me and still follow Me. You know, difficult times will come, but our job is to forgive and to continue to seek the Lord. And we leave the enemies to God and He'll deal with them. Men. So, so the Jews continued the rebuilding of the temple and were encouraged by the continuing prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah. And in four years after Darius' decree, they completed the temple. They dedicated it to the Lord. They reinstituted the temple sacrifices. They began practicing the religious festivals, and the work was complete. I have three more pages of notes that we're not going to get to tonight, but I want to leave you with three things about what the work of God is in our lives. The first thing that the work of God is in our lives is to rebuild relationship with God, personal relationship with God. That is the first priority in your life is to build relationship with God. You see, the Jews, their temple was destroyed and they were separated from the covenant of God because of their sin. And when sin entered into the world, when sin entered into man by Adam and, and, and 
All flesh was corrupted. And the Bible says that our flesh, our body, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are born into broken temples, separated from the covenant of God. And it's by salvation that that covenant is restored and we're restored to God and we're restored to relationship with God. But it is the priority of the believer's life to spend our lifetime rebuilding the temple that is our body, soul, and spirit by prayer, by worship, by renewing our minds with His Word, by seeking Him every single day, by giving Him our first and our best every single day, showing up. Second great work of God is to build godly families. You know, before before God instituted the law, before God instituted the prophets, before God established the church, God established the family first. God could have cast Himself as anything He wanted to. He could have set Himself as a symbol of of anything that He wanted to in order to relate to man. But He cast Himself as a father. And I want you to understand tonight that that family is very important to God. It's very important. It's very important to God. I believe that nothing is more important to God than our relationship with our family except for our relationship with Him. That's what I believe. You know, the Bible says that God is love. How does God love? God so loved the world that He gave. He gave His Son. God gives mercy. God gives grace. God gives salvation. God gives these things into our lives without any promise of anything in return. God is love. And the Bible says that we are to love our fellow man as we love ourselves. You know, love is intended to give. Love was never intended to get. And so I want to ask you something. I just want to leave you with this and think on it. What do you seek in your family relationships? Do you seek what you can get? Or do you seek what you can give? Because if, if you're just seeking what you can get, the curse is on your life. You'll never be satisfied. But in our families, and I don't care if you're married, divorced, Um, You know, I don't care if you're young or old. All of us have families, and the family is important to God. And I want to encourage you to begin to devote yourself to the family, what you can give. And the last thing, the last work of God in our lives is to build the church. You know, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the head and the church is the body. The whole New Testament establishes that the church is God's only plan from, the, from Christ's death on the cross and His resurrection to the time that He returns as King of kings and Lord of lords. And this time frame, from that time to now to when Christ returns, the church is God's only plan. Don't let anybody ever tell you any different. The local church, the church in the world, the Christian church as a whole, and our congregation right here is God's only plan. And the work of God in our lives is to build the church. To build the church 
for the purposes of God. You know, many Christians today, this is my last thing, many Christians today view the church as uh, more of a party ship. We talked about this before. How, How can the church please me? When in fact, God designed the church to be a labor vessel, a fishing vessel, in which we come and we put our hands to the work of God. We don't spectate. We don't come and get filled and leave. But we put our hands to the work of God. We serve. And so many people get disoriented and fed up with the church because all they do is spectate. And we jump from church to church to church to church. We've got to build in the church a culture where we put our hands to the work of God. That's the third great work of God in your life. To build your relationship with Him, to build godly families, and to build the church. So I want to encourage you in closing here that, you know, if you don't have a place where you serve right now in our church, I want to encourage you to begin praying about a place where you can serve. Put your hand to the work of God. Let's stand up and pray.